This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to be talking about how technology is changing our lives and politics. We are joined for this for a delightful and wide-ranging conversation with Megan Garber, a writer for The Atlantic. Before we do, we are going to sit with the horror of Tyree Nichols' murder in Memphis, Tennessee. And we will end the show by discussing what's on our minds outside of politics, which today is Sarah's attendance at a Robert Burns dinner this weekend. But before we get into all that, and that is a lot to get into, we wanted to announce our first live show of 2023. We are going to be live in Orlando, Florida on Wednesday, April 5th. It is going to be a very fun show. Our families will be there. Maggie and Elise will be there. We think Dante, the composer of our theme music, is going to come. We're going to be doing a lot of fun things and talking about the politics of the happiest place on earth. And it's going to be a real pantsuit politics party. We are so excited. Tickets are now available for purchase, and you can do that through the link in our show notes. Next up, we'll talk about what we know and don't know about the loss of Tyree Nichols. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our Fearless Finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit, and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code Pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code Pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that Part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. 
personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Sarah, this morning, Ellen, my seven-year-old, asked me about Tyree Nichols because she had seen a headline about him on our Amazon Echo. And I thought it might be helpful to just talk through here what I talked through with her. And that is kind of what we know and what we don't know. We know that on January 7th, Tyree Nichols was pulled over by police for allegedly reckless driving. Tyree Nichols was a 29-year-old man a father, a son, a photographer, someone who loved skateboarding, someone who had Crohn's disease, a really difficult mm. intestinal issue, was pulled over by police for alleged reckless driving. He was on his way home from his job at FedEx and was about two minutes from his home when he was pulled over. And we don't know why, but police officers approached him really aggressively from the beginning and they sprayed him with pepper spray and he ran. And the police officers went after him and and got custody of him, and they beat him terribly. And then they waited around for a while, and somebody smoked a cigarette, and they chatted mm. with each other about why they did it. And his body sat on the ground next to a car, and finally an ambulance came. And that's what we know today. And we have some other details about how his family found out. We know that officers went to their home between 8 and 9 p.m., told his mother he'd been arrested for a DUI and that he mm. was being taken to the hospital because he had been pepper sprayed and tased and that he'd later be booked at the police station. And they told her she could not go to the hospital. And not until 4 a.m. did she hear from a doctor who summoned her to the hospital. And then she learned that her son was in cardiac arrest and his kidneys were failing. She said, that doesn't sound like something that would happen because of pepper spray and a taser. Mm -mm. And she said as soon as she saw him, she knew he was gone. He died three days later. Federal investigations were opened into his death on January 18th. State investigations were already underway. Two days later, on January 20th, five police officers were fired for violating department policies, including excessive use of force, duty to intervene, and duty to render aid. On January 23rd, Tyree's family saw body camera footage and described it as heinous and violent and troublesome on every level. They say the police kicked him and pepper sprayed him and used a stun gun while Tyree repeatedly asked, what did I do? And then on January 26th, the five officers most directly involved were charged with second degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct through failure to act, and official oppression. An autopsy confirmed that Tyree died from extensive bleeding caused by severe beating. And Memphis's chief of police, C.J. Davis, said that the officer's actions were heinous, reckless, and inhumane. And then Memphis officials released footage, 67 minutes of footage from body cameras and a poll camera. And that's what I told Ellen, that we don't know why this happened. We don't know why it took so long 
for anyone to help this man. We don't know why the police were interested in this man to begin with. And we have to sit here now and know that our government has betrayed one of its citizens and his family and all of us in in the process. And it's really hard. I first saw coverage of Tyree Nichols and his death and the demands of his family probably a week and a half ago. I even had a friend from Memphis reach out and say, are you following this? Are you watching this? And I said, yes. But it was not until they released the footage on Friday that there was, you know, there was much anticipation for, there was much preparation for, preparing the public, that I realized that all five officers involved were Black. And I just had this intake of breath, and I thought, what is this going to mean? And how is the discussion and the sort of public discourse around this event going to move forward? And I have to say that overall, I found the discourse, if not encouraging, at least not harmful. The only part of the coverage that really bothered me that felt racist was how much emphasis there was on like cities are preparing for violence. So everybody's preparing for violence. But there was and then it was like, oh, well, there was nonviolent protest. That part bugged me. I did not like all that emphasis on or assumption, assumption that people would react to this video violently. But besides that, I thought the discourse around the video itself, as citizens, what is our obligation to watch or not to watch? Um, I thought the discourse around policing and the race of the officers was constructive. Perry Bacon Jr., who we've had on this podcast before and who we both have enormous respect for, wrote in the Washington Post, the five officers were all black, as was Nichols, as is Memphis's police chief. That doesn't make this situation less bad or unrelated to racism. The problem, as Black Lives Matter activists have been saying for a decade, isn't that individual officers hate black people or other minorities. It's that America's police departments deploy and train their officers to view everyday citizens as either threats to the officer's safety or disruptions to an orderly society, resulting in altercations escalating needlessly into killings. You know, the the New York Times had done a comprehensive report about traffic stops and how people get killed in traffic stops because they just escalate. Again, I thought the coverage of the 71 commands in 13 minutes and how conflicting they were and how confusing that must feel and how it happens that you have officers shouting conflicting demands at you was really, really good. And there is going to be, I'm sure, continued coverage of this particular unit, the Scorpion unit, which was supposed to be responsible t- for tackling rising crime in Memphis, but has been disbanded, was really important and constructive. And also, <laughs> none of that lessens the heartbreak of thinking about this human being calling for his mother who lived hundreds of yards away. You don't have to watch the video to be heartbroken, heartbroken. And I thought, you know, the the video was so violent and it was matched by this outpouring of really just devotion to, to focusing on this man's humanity in a way that was just as heartbreaking as if you watched all 60 minutes of that footage, more so. More so to see him and to see what he loved and what he cared about and, and engaging in creative acts and and having a tattoo of his mother on his body. Like, I just, it was all impossibly hard. But I felt like there was 
movement in that hardness. It felt like the hardness was taking us in a direction that is important. I did not watch the video. I heard a lot of audio from it and I read a lot about it, but I did not watch the video. I just felt so conflicted about it. And I did appreciate some of the writing, especially the piece in the New York Times that said there there are reasons to witness it and there are reasons to think that witnessing Mm -hmm. it is is harmful. And that's Mm -hmm. where I landed. And so I tried to spend my viewing time with his family and with Memphis officials I was really struck by a CNN interview with a Memphis city councilman who just broke down. There were minutes where he just couldn't speak. And Don Mm. Lemon just allowed him to be, which I thought was Mm. really important and different. There was a moment when Don Lemon asked him, do you want me to leave you or do you want me to stay with you? Mm. And they stayed. There was a moment when Don Lemon said to his producers, please don't cut from this. This is important. Mm. And I do think that people covering this story have worked hard to let it sink in that this is real and Mm -hmm. to not let the reality of it be lost. In terms of what happens next, I'm really struck by that the immediate disbanding of this unit. We have a lot of conversations about how quickly they moved to first fire and then charge these officers. What would have happened if the officers had been white? And mm. and I think all of that analysis is important. I don't think I can add anything meaningful to it. I think the fact that they disbanded this unit so quickly is really significant. I've been considering the whole defund the police movement and idea and how that phrase has been interpreted politically and how it's become toxic politically and people have really run away from it. And I think that... What is in my heart about police officers right now is is not defunding, but demilitarizing. Mm-hmm. When you hear something like the Scorpion unit in Memphis, Tennessee, that just lets you know that there is a there is a training and an ethos that says you're in a war zone and you're going to operate like military members would operate in a war zone. And I am sure that because of my life experiences, I cannot imagine what these officers contend with often in the legitimate pursuit of safety for the citizens of Memphis. At the same time, I know it's different than what military members contend with. And I know that the tools that they need and the training that they need and the approach that they take has to be different. And so I am most encouraged that immediately they said, yes, we are going to shut that down. And we are going to rethink this. And I think that's part of why the protests have been peaceful, because this can't be made right, but the government is acting. And often the protests have been ignited by inaction. And at least here there is communication and there is there is action. I think your point about demilitarization is so good. And also, I mean, I think that's what Black Lives Matter is trying to get at. You know what's expensive? Militarizing a police force. Mm -hmm. So if you cut off the funding... That changes things. And I just think about how much Memphis is being asked to hold, a city I dearly love. I love every time I've ever been to Memphis. And it's like, when was the last time Memphis was in the news? With the death of Eliza Fletcher, this like stereotypical out of a nightmare violent crime, right, where you get snatched off the streets. And what was Memphis being asked to do? Get the crime under control. Get That was the drumbeat mm-hmm. all of the midterm. Violent crime, violent crime, violent crime. And then you you form this unit to address this concern, which is the at the fundamental center of government. Keep your citizens safe. 
And what do we have here? We have a, a unit of this police force that, by all accounts, was functioning as almost like a gang. My husband and I were talking about this morning. He's like, I mean, how many years ago did Training Day came out? We had a piece of art that said, this is what happens when you empower people to go after a subset of the population that you've, like, sort of created this characterization of that doesn't have any advocacy because they're criminals. So whatever it takes to do, become go after the criminals, which then leads to criminal behavior. And I thought, like, I, and I, I don't know what the answer is. Is there any form of policing in the prevention of crime that doesn't take us down this road? I mean, I think that is the very difficult question that the Black Lives Matter movement has been asking us from the beginning, which is, what does this do? What does this do to people that allows them to leave someone on the ground in medical distress for almost an hour. I just, it is so, so corrosive to our human instincts. And we see evidence of that over and over and over again. And if you care, and if you work or you love someone who works in these units, then you should care about that as much as anybody else. Yeah, because these these folks have to live with this. All of them. There's so many people here. That's why you know that it's corrosive to the human spirit on a big picture level. Because so many people allowed this to unfold. There's no good way to leave a conversation like this. I feel like everything I might say is hollow and inadequate. So we wanted to share a statement from Tyree Nichols' family attorney, Ben Crump where he calls for another step that needs to be taken here, the passage of Tyree's law, and it would require officers to intervene when they see a crime in progress like this. The appropriate legacy that we give Tyree Nicholson, if we really say we want justice for justice, it's not just justice for one family, it's justice for all of us. That's what Rovine is praying for. She wants reform. We want this duty to intervene to become Tyree's law, just like they have Carry On Horn's law in the state of New York. And for those of you who don't know that, sister, as me and attorney Moore talked this morning, Carrie Ann Horn was a black police officer. She witnessed one of her fellow officers brutalizing a black citizen and she to intervene and stop them and got assaulted herself when she tried to stop them but because she intervened she was retaliated against and she was terminated and had to fight almost a decade-long battle to get justice because they had no duty to intervene for police officers before her courageous act. And the issue is, we have to make it official. We have to make it documented. We got to put it on the books. We have to have notice that police officers, you have a duty to intervene when you see a crime being committed. You expect the people to say something, well, why don't y'all show us how to do it? You all go first when you see a crime being committed. And then people in our community will feel a lot more uh, 
safe when they go intervene and say we saw a crime when you want us to tell what we saw well you tell what you saw too amen, amen. and so this is what Miss Rowe Vaughn and Rodney and Jamal and Kiwana and Michael his siblings that's what they want they want reform with these charges Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library, a fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing, I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We have been planning to talk about artificial intelligence and chat GPT, and then we read Megan Garber's new cover story for The Atlantic called We're Already in the Metaverse. 
As we read it, we knew we needed to talk with Megan for this conversation. She is an award-winning staff writer at The Atlantic, where she writes about the intersection of politics and culture, and we are thrilled to have her join us today. How did this piece start? What was your inspiration? You know, really, my inspiration was spending a lot of time on social media. That was pretty much it, just sort of noticing the way that people, um, very much myself included, tend to relate to each other on social media, not quite as other people, you know, as we would in in person, but as kind of characters in a show a little bit and this this sort of distance and almost like dehumanization um, that I kept noticing in interactions. And I noticed myself doing it too. You know, I'd think of people as kind of characters and, you know, became very troubled by sort of noticing that that I was doing this too. And that really was sort of the animating idea behind the piece. And then I just thought more and more, you know, what accounts for this? <laughs> you know, what is, what are these new platforms that are in some ways so amazing? And so, I mean, just literally revolutionary and allow for such great things, but you know, what are the downsides of them? How are they encouraging us to interact and treat each other? And so that was really the genesis. Well, and you start the article with TikTok dances, and I think TikTok has been the accelerant here because it detached us from that social network, right? No longer Mm. are we on Facebook with friends and family or even people we've chosen to follow on Instagram. We are being served content from perfect strangers that the TikTok algorithm, or sometimes, as we have recently learned, TikTok (laughs) employees themselves, have put in front of us, right? And so then it really, I feel like that last little thread that was holding some sort of humanity or just some sort of, like I said, social connection together was detached. And TikTok is huge. So even if it was a minor social platform and it was, and see, again, I don't even know if social platform is the right word for TikTok because there's no social element, at least in your in your real life social network, right? Whatever that tiny thread was, the way it accelerated into predominance, I feel like detached that last remaining thread. It's such a good point completely. And it's so much about performance, right? It's not really about interaction. It's about this kind of one-way broadcast, you know, of a talent, of a, you know, a, a kind of clip of a show, something like that. And, you know, in some ways that can be wonderful. I really love TikTok for that purpose. And I'm sort of blown away every time I go on that app with just sort of human ingenuity and weirdness and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And and there are so many good things on display there. But just like you said, I think the point is, it is on display. It is meant to be performed. It is the one way. It is really not a social interaction. And that you're right, that's, that's key. And I think that TikTok you know, that feels to me like the future, you know, the the sort of, you know, Facebook with its conversations and even Twitter with its conversations for all the limitations they had. Uh, the conversation does not seem to me to be where we're going, but the performance very much does. I think that performance element is why I have started to really resent the word content. And I know that that's like a terrible thing because I am a content creator. There's no denying it. <laughs> and even as we have like content calendar meetings, I'm upset by it. I just I'm just generally upset by the state of things and by feeling <laughs> like I am participating in a system that turns everyone into a performer and a product. And at the same time, I am very committed to doing the thing that your article is about, which I think is like using relatively entertaining things to help us make meaning of what's going on and then losing our grasp on meaning in the process. 
Ooh. Oh, that's such a great way to put it. I mean, I think what I would say is, you know, it, I wrestled a lot in writing this because I, like you, I have, you know, a lot of different dogs in the fight basically here. And, you know, I am, I'm a TV critic too. I, you know, I write about television and movies and books and, um, you know, that is entertainment. And, um, you know, so I really did wrestle with sort of what are the nuances here, but what I've sort of settled on is, you know, entertainment is, and even content, I would say, you know, just to, I agree, I do not love the term, but I will use it, you know, in lieu of a better one. Um, but, you know, those, those things are wonderful in a lot of ways. They are how we find joy and connection. And, you know, all the things that people say about art, I think you can generally say for entertainment as well. And, you know, a lot of just beauty can come from that and connection and empathy and all these things that are, you know, goods um, in our culture. I think, though, where things go awry in my mind is when entertainment becomes not one thing, not one option for, for society and for culture, but the only thing that we have and the only thing that we recognize. So, you know, what I'm trying to think about in this article is just, you know, what happens when politics also has a mandate to be entertaining when mm -hmm. culture itself has the mandate to be entertaining when, you know, even wisdom and just, you know, these very sort of old notions um, of, of things, uh, what happens then when all of those are filtered through the demands of entertainment? And, and I think, you know, nothing good, really. I think, you know, when entertainment is one facet of life, that is great. But when it becomes everything, that is where the problem starts. Anyone who's been in sort of the evangelical community or even adjacent will understand there's been this drive in churches to make them entertaining. They are yep. performances. The music is a performance. There's a coffee shop in the lobby. Like there's all this uh, this desire to appeal and to market and to draw people in. And I think it's really complicated. When I was reading your piece, especially the part about doing this around history, doing this around like news and politics, but like recent historical events. I thought about, follow me here, pharmaceutical advertising. And they Ooh. say like, right, it was such a big deal when they would say, talk to your doctor in both good ways and bad, because it did for the first time put in people's brain, I can advocate for myself. I can talk to my doctor about this instead of just taking direction. So it was a mixed bag, right? And that, but it was also this, like we were marketing something that if you really think about it, shouldn't be marketable, right? Like it should be something you need and you're diagnosed with. But also, again, this positive that there was advocacy in a role that people had not realized they could advocate for themselves. And I think with this history, you know, look, the the upside of this technology is for, I think, some of the first times in human history, like one of the first time in human history, this type of historical analysis and, and this type of thinking, I was just, even this weekend, I'm thinking like this systemic, issue with policing. Like, this is a hard thing. You go back in history, you're not going to see a majority of the human populace struggling with systemic injustice, right? I mean, you ha obviously, you have slavery, and you had people using that, using entertainment, like Uncle Top's Cabin, to get that into the populace's mindset, and probably people criticizing it, right? Like, I was thinking, I'm sure, I'm sure I didn't do this, but I'm sure you could find historians with, like, the first Ken Burns documentary being like, how dare you transform this history in our entertainment? But it's like, we're putting it out there, and it's this, like, self-perpetuating cycle where we're foisting this stuff on humanity in a way they haven't had to think about it, and then they're stressed, like... <laughs> 
from the anxiety of just dealing with all this. And so they they lean back into entertainment and then they're pushed further with this cultural and political analysis through the lens of entertainment. And it's just like this modern, vicious cycle. Definitely. And I think one element of that, too, is, you know, um, it is so common now for um, a big news story to break, you know, and often a tragic news story. And for, you know, a week later, two weeks later to hear the announcement that the tragedy is being turned into, you know, sometimes a documentary, much more often a podcast series or a semi-fictionalized series on HBO Plus or Mm -hmm. HBO Max or Apple TV Plus or one of those. And, you know, it is so common now. And I I worry a little bit that the tendency will become, you know, um, and I've actually seen many people say this on on social media, you know, I'll just wait to pay attention until the miniseries comes out. I'll wait, you know, to care essentially um, until this becomes metabolized as entertainment. And that I think is very you know, problematic. And one of the things that that I worry about, you know, with this idea of how extensive just sort of the logic of entertainment has become is that I think it encourages a certain level of passivity. I think it, you know, um, republics require publics, they require active citizens, you know, working together to create the future they want. And when you only have an audience, that I think encourages people simply to sit there and you can either applaud, you can boo, your options are very limited when you are an audience. And I think that so much in our culture right now conditions us to be audiences and simply watch the world as it happens rather than taking charge of the world and making it better. I love that distinction. It makes me think about something that I just can't quite get over. I'm just mad about Ted Cruz having a podcast. Apparently, it <laughs> sticks in my mind all the time. Like a daily podcast, not like a seasonal every once in a right. while. Like every day, this senator is making a podcast. <laughs> and it just really upsets me. One, because I know making a podcast is a lot of work. But more than that, I believe that being a senator is more work. And I don't understand how these two things are happening. And I don't understand why people aren't matter about it. But I think that because we are in that audience space, we almost tell ourselves, this is great. This is transparency and access to my senator that I wouldn't have otherwise. And it it really gives me that feeling that we are, as you say in your piece, in the metaverse already because we, we can't even see this for what it is. Exactly. And I think we see that, too, with with other, um, you know, representatives, senators and um, politicians in general, where they really are judged based not on the policy they vote for, on the change they implement, you know, for real people in real people's lives. Um, but, you know, whether they can have a good burn on Twitter or whether they can, you know, have a have a good meme, that kind of thing. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene um, is someone who gets outsized attention because she is so good at making scenes and making people mad. And Lauren Bieber is the same way. And, um, you know, again and again, these politicians who I think in the past would have been considered fairly fringe. Um, they get outsized attention because they understand so intuitively, I think, how the media environment of this moment works. And they sort of, like you said, they, they kind of live in the metaverse. Um, and, and that really skews our politics because you have these people that don't necessarily represent um, any kind of majority opinion, but here they are every day on the news. And that gives the impression that their views are more widely shared. Well, and I think the more corrosive part of this is not that we are purely audiences, because we're not. Because of the technology you're talking about, it's just a little bit more. It can give you that Mm. feeling 
of doing something, that sort of commodified activism and that influence. I thought Tish Harrison Warren's piece about the corrosiveness of being a personal brand in the New York Times this weekend was so good because we're a little bit more than an audience. And that tricks us into thinking we're doing something besides just engaging in entertainment. And in, like, in some ways we are, you know, my my uh, moment, my political moment that I couldn't get over is Madison Cawthorn saying, well, you guys should have more communication staff. Forget the legislative staff. Like as a former legislative staffer, that made me want to burn it all down. But look, he's not in Congress anymore. You know, he lost like yeah. he burned out and he flamed <laughs> out. And I just have to remind myself that it can feel like we're like we're stuck in this blur and we're stuck in this place. But there are consequences. But I do think and even even consequences to that influence, like I do think things happen on social media politically, even that matter that have impact, you know, like that that blurry line that social media provides us has impact, but it it negative as well, where it becomes it's not politically or culturally or societally impactful unless it has that wash of entertainment. No, I think that's exactly right. And these are, yeah, everything here is is held in tension because there are, I mean, yes, social media has given voice to people who would not have had a voice before in the same way. And that is huge. And I think we're just beginning to understand and then reckon with what that will mean. Um, but I think it largely has meant very good things, um, you know, for American politics. But then the other side of that is, I think, when we are taught to sort of um, not take each other's voices seriously, to dismiss each other, you know, just even the term crisis actor is so often invoked as just a reason to ignore someone. And so many examples like that, where we just kind of find reasons to discount each other as people and, and really to dehumanize each other. I mean, I think actually one of the upshots of of um, this article at any rate, and, and this idea of sort of what it means to live in the metaverse is that propaganda is not just about information. I think propaganda yeah. is also about how we see other people. That fundamentally is what it does. And I, I worry that, you know, the more time we spend in these digital environments, the more we are encouraged to not see each other as full people, full humans who are just as worthy as we are, but, you know, as something less than us, as somehow fictional. And yeah. that very quickly, obviously, becomes a big problem for, for all of us. Given where we already are, I wonder where you think we're going, especially as you take in the chat GPT conversation. Do you think AI drives us deeper into the metaverse or maybe starts to take us out of it in some way? Ooh, that's so interesting. I would, I, my first reaction is probably drives us deeper in for the moment, um, just in the sense of, you know, if, if part of the metaverse is this idea of sort of physical reality and digital reality colliding in ways that are very hard to sort of disentangle, then I think, you know, these algorithms, um, these chatbots, et cetera, this artificial intelligence, they are going to blur those lines even more. But I would also say I'm not necessarily a pessimist about ChatGPT and other, other systems, because I think we've had so many examples like that in, in, you know, history, both recent and ancient, you know, um, handwriting and writing in general was once very controversial because people worried that it would obliterate our memories. And, you know, and in a certain sense, that was right. But we found other ways to, 
be wise and to, you know, and, and all of the, these things sort of have their analogs in history. And my feeling is, you know, and I'm not just trying to please any future robot overlords and saying this, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I do think that, yes, it, it, this will be a revolutionary technology, um, either right now or very quickly down the road, but I don't think it will necessarily destroy anything, I think it will function as kind of an adjunct to what we already have. And humans will have to sort of rethink, you know, what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be creative? What does it mean even to be human? Um, And Mm -hmm. those are questions that we'll have to negotiate. But we've been in this position before, and we've always come out with answers. Well, and it's so funny to me in your piece. I mean, listen, you take some really high-end dystopic writing and talk about it. But the whole time, (laughs) all I was thinking about is WALL-E. That's oh, the piece of dystopic, yes. but how meta, because that's a piece of mass entertainment, right? But those like floating around on their little things, like that's the one I'm always like, we're going to end up like, whoa, yes. um, it's so bad. <laughs> but it's like, I, I also think that, again, that, that form of mass entertainment can put ideas in people's heads that I think are that are beneficial, that help, that push the conversation a little bit further. And I also just have to remind myself that like, not all of humanity is meant or wants or is capable of struggling with this stuff, right? Like some people, like I think, are just the entertainment is the entertainment. And mm-hmm. then that's why you have other people who want to engage in that bigger, wiser question. And I think like I have to remind myself, like, we all don't have to agree on this for the conversation to be important. Like we all don't even have to agree that it is important for the conversation <laughs> to be important and have impact. But that's hard when everything's entertainment. Yeah, no, exactly. And that that is one of the upshots I think of this is just um of the the story is just, yeah, when everything is entertainment, it everything else becomes harder to sort of understand. You know, like where where does the politics end and the entertainment begin? And you could ask the same thing about so many dimensions of life. One thing I would say is that, um, you know, in American history, I mean, Americans take our entertainment very seriously. I think it's actually kind of definitionally how we think of ourselves in some ways. I think, you know, compared to a lot of other cultures, um, we really don't like to be bored. We really expect to, you know, for life to be kind of fun and amusing. I think that's actually an important part of sort of the American character. You look back to something like, um, you know, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, for example, one of the tracks that led directly to the American Revolution. And I think what people sometimes forget about that book was that not only was it, you know, a passionate argument for revolution, uh, it was also just really funny. It was really kind of darkly funny, entertaining. People would read it aloud together in groups. And, you know, that is, I think, a metaphor for a lot of the most sort of influential political um, tracks and discourses that have changed American history, that they have been in some way, if not entertaining, they've had that dimension of performance and theatricality. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that on its own. I think the problem just becomes when we sort of lose sight of of the, you know, seriousness at the other end of things and where just everything becomes kind of a performance and a joke. You could look at, you know, George Santos, for example, who, you know, made up his entire career essentially and seems to be facing at this moment extremely few consequences, a lot of people just don't seem to care that he just lied and seem to be sort of making light of 
of those lies. Um, and I think that, that that to me is an inflection point. That to me is a worrying indication of where we're going, where even just complete lies um, are, are going to face, again, for the moment, maybe things will change, but for the moment, very little accountability. Well, and I also just think, though, it's not just that the political and those those moments of political and cultural breakthrough are entertaining. It's also that our entertainment has gotten more political mm. and cultural. Like mm-hmm. they're working on each other. Yeah. They've gotten better. It's gotten smarter. Go back and, you know, read some like popular novels. Some of them are bad from like even the <laughs> 70s. Narva the Thornbird. It's not a great book, you know, like, but it was huge at the time. Yeah. It's yeah. like we're getting smarter in our entertainment as well. It's getting more politically complicated. It's getting more culturally diverse. It's working on people in better and different and more diverse ways. And I think like that's what's hard. But when it's all tied up together, the overall impact is so hard to piece apart because everything is working on everything all the time. The George Santos piece is so striking in that difference between being a citizen and being an audience member, too. Is it that people don't Mm. care or is it they feel that they don't have a role to play here? He's been elected. They don't have another job until two years later. And for now, it's it's entertaining. It keeps us occupied. What is there for us to do? Right. No, exactly. And and um, people said similar things actually about Donald Trump before he was elected. You know, um, well things oh, are we a mess. Remember. I don't. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I yeah. One one voter. This this is stuck in my head since 2016. Um, you know, he said things are a mess. I don't really see things changing. At least Donald Trump is fun. (laughs) And, you know, just that idea. And I think that that really does speak to, you know, a real kind of um, cynicism among the public. And, you know, and and much of it earns, much of it very fair. And I feel it too. Um, But, but yeah, exactly. It, it, It forces us to be audiences versus, you know, taking more charge of our own shared future. And I think too, it, you know, entertainment, when that becomes the standard, um, can just lead us to sort of permanent distraction, where we have so many problems that are begging for our attention, that are existential, that are so important, um, and that really are are kind of, you know, putting us at a precipice um, in so many different ways. And if we can't look at those and see them for what they are, we're all going to be in a world of trouble. And I think that, you know, when things become simply entertaining, when that is the main question that gets asked, we do live in this state of permanent distraction and addlements, and we're looking at the wrong thing as the important things are happening without our input. So to me, that's a really big upshot of this, is just looking away from what we should be seeing. Not for nothing. If I'm excavating the source of American cynicism and detachment from political realities, it's not in the development and rise of social media. It's in reality television. Mm. Like, that's mm-hmm. where I think you really see the... Because it's one thing if it if it's entertainment, but it's fictional. At the end of the day, it's fictional. But when you talk about reality television and that just that corrosive, weird arguably meta mix of reality and fictional. It's like, that's where people started thinking, well, what is true? What is Mm. real? And like, could not get out of it. And it's like, I always think about that Maggie Haberman quote where somebody told her, well, I watched him run his business on TV. What? No, you didn't, friend. When am I here to make friends? (laughs) (laughs) When is there a situation where I'm actually here to connect with other people? What are the right reasons? Who's here for the right reasons? Yes. (laughs) Reality TV, man. Oof. 
Yeah, no, and speaking of that completely, um, you know, the, the producers of uh, The Apprentice have gone on the record talking about how they really had to work to make Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know, seem very capable. They edited him into that role. So he didn't have like to fire people. Performing. Yes. He doesn't like to do yep. it. He's bad. Yep. He doesn't like to do it on Twitter. He doesn't like to do yep. it in person. <laughs> exactly. And now, too, I think what we have is this new kind of subgenre of reality TV where it's not quite reality in the, you know, apprentice, bachelor, bachelorette kind of way of things, um, but it's a semi-fictionalized take on real people. So you have something like The Crown, for example. I felt very convicted during this part of your article. I definitely watched The Crown like it's true. I'm not going to lie. And of course you would, because you don't, I, you don't want to be on Wikipedia the whole time, kind of cross-referencing, which I have done before, I will fully <laughs> You know, but that's not a good viewing experience. So you do sort of have to give yourself over to the idea that it's fiction. But then, of course, it's not fiction. And then the question becomes, you know, is the Queen Elizabeth that I'm seeing on the screen, is this a person or is this mm. a character? And, you know, if it's a person... She is owed something as a person. She's owed a certain level of dignity, care, you know, all these things. As a fictional character, she's owed absolutely nothing. And I think the fact that, that, you know, this new subgenre is, is really blurring those lines, I think, in a very um, self-conscious way. And really ethically problematic. I do feel like, I feel like the moment that genre jump the shark, really, was when Pamela Anderson, they were writing this piece about Pamela and Tommy and how Pamela got exploited. And the whole time she was like, don't do this. I'm alive and I don't want you to make this. So you're making a piece about her being exploited while ignoring her desire not to be a part of this piece. That's gross. Yeah. Shut up. We're going to save you. Don't worry yes. about it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. And especially all these victims of like true crime pieces who are like, I didn't ask for this. Yes. I don't want this. Right. Or uh, the family of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims coming forward and saying, I don't want this to exist. And they don't get a say. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. I want to go back to your point about distraction for just a second, because I had a full fall apart after I read your piece on Friday, because before I read your piece, I had spent most of the day for reasons I will not get into here, caring for a six month old child who was not who's a stranger to me. I don't know the child's parents. I've never met the child before. And my only job was to just take care of this child for the day, hold this child, feed it, help it sleep. And I did not look at my phone much at all and didn't talk to anybody else. I didn't watch TV. I didn't listen to a podcast. It was just me and this baby for hours. Hmm. And I noticed how my body changed Mm. It was like suddenly I had superpowers because I could sense what was going on with this baby. And I I knew what to do to help. You know, this baby had been crying and crying and crying. And I and I knew how to help. And then I read your piece uh, when I got home from that. And I was so sad because I thought about how just an enormous percentage of my parenting time has been distracted. Mm. I love my life in the metaverse, you know? <laughs> I love making my internet show and uh, conversing with people who I'll never meet. And I I do find value in that. And I think it creates real meaning outside of the metaverse in some ways. But then when I have an, such an intense offline experience, you know, that has nothing to do with anything other than just these two bodies here, 
I wonder, how are we to balance all of this? And and does entertainment have a role in helping us answer that question? And what is that role if it does? Like, should the crown come with like book club discussion questions at the end to think about? Does it matter how much we fictionalize this? I don't know. I love, I mean, I, I think it's fairly clear. I am a giant nerd, so I love that idea. <laughs> but, but, you know, no, yes, I think that, that that really is the question because, you know, entertainment is not going anywhere, nor should it. Um, entertainment brings joy and so many good things. I Roger Ebert called movies engines of empathy. Mm. And I think that you can apply that to so many other dimensions of entertainment and really at its best, um, that's what it does. It connects us um, even over distances. It creates community. It creates understanding. It, you know, introduces us to people we would never meet, whether they're fiction or nonfiction. Um, it does so many good things. So definitely the point is not to sort of excise entertainment, but it is exactly like you said, to sort of figure out how it should fit into our lives, you know. And and I think the main question for me is sort of. Um, you know, are we in control of our own entertainment or is it somehow in control of us? Mm -hmm. And I think now we've reached over to the point where in many ways it is in control of us. And when I say it, that often means, you know, the companies that (laughs) kind of oversee our entertainment landscapes, you know, and that includes social media companies. It includes, you know, movie studios and TV studios and so many other, other things, you know, but, but that to me is the question. And right now I do not myself feel in control of of the way that I take in entertainment. And that to me is part of the problem. Well, and it's just the difference between entertainment and art. And we all know it. We try to we try to name it. We call it mindless entertainment or we call it guilty pleasures or we try to put words around the fact that we know what we're consuming doesn't do anything for us. It's not asking us any hard questions. And you're right. That's it can be enormously powerful. One of the most impactful moments that I still think about all the time is I heard Tracy Clayton stand up and say, White people can take in black entertainment. We've been taking in stuff made for you guys our whole lives. You can take in stuff made for us. And like when I look back on that engine of empathy where I really took steps forward and had my experience expanded, it was from watching shows like Insecure and Atlanta, shows that are hard to watch sometimes, that are asking, especially Atlanta, difficult questions. But also, even insecure in, like, a joyful way. Like, that stuff is important and it matters. And nobody would describe either of those shows as mindless entertainment or guilty pleasures, right? And so I just think, like, we know it. We know the difference when we're just consuming, consuming, consuming versus where we're interacting, even just as an audience member, with art that is challenging us, that is asking us interesting questions. Like, you're a TV critic. You know the difference when you're seeing something like that versus this, you know, 25th season of The Real Housewives. No, exactly. And those shows, I yes, are definitely art. I mean, I, you know, no question. Um, but I would also say too, you know, even on the shows that aren't as challenging on their face, um, a show like, for example, The Masked Singer. Do you, do you know this show? So this is, I'm obsessed with this show. I find it so <laughs> fascinating. As My kids just, love this show. Right? <laughs> it's so good. And it's, and it's not art you know, in any like real definition. And yet, like, it says so many interesting things about our culture. And I think it it has lessons, you know, for better or for worse. It's it, the show that really, I think, 
um, explores kind of cynicism and mm-hmm. fakery and what it means to wear a mask and what it means to take the mask off. And, you know, there are lots of, of things that you can get out of watching that show, even though it probably does fit in with, you know, Real Housewives. It's, and I think you could actually say a similar thing about Real Housewives. Um, you know, so I think for all of these shows, it, it really does come down to sort of the relationship between the show itself and the viewer and what the mm-hmm. viewer cares about, what they respond to. And to me, that's the power of, of these works, you know, that even the ones that don't seem like art can actually do the work of art in a lot of different ways. Listen, that is the internal struggle of reality television, because when you do it well, when you take command of that incredibly powerful medium and try to do something, man, is it impactful. It yep. is incredibly impactful. But like, you know, when it's when you don't, it's a mess. Yep. Before we let you go, I just want to ask you, what are you still thinking about after you've written this piece? What did you not answer in the process of writing it that is still on your mind? Ooh, that's a great question. Actually, related to the chat GPT idea, I mean, I, I think um, one of the things that my editors and I did not focus on as much is just this idea of sort of reality and well, different types of reality, I guess, sort of the digital world and the physical world just kind of collapsing into each other. So, you know, you have things like holograms, for example, you know, being an ever more common part of the entertainment landscape or immersive experiences where you, you know, you don't just see a Van Gogh painting, for example, at the museum, but you live within it and you take Mm -hmm. pictures of yourself within it and all these, you know, these, these very self-conscious attempts to sort of collapse the digital and the physical. And I think there's so much interesting stuff there that we just simply didn't have room for in this essay. But those are things that I definitely want to keep thinking about because I, I think they have so much, um, so much to tell us about sort of where we're all going together (laughs) into the future and, and have a lot of similar questions to this question about entertainment. Well, we look forward to reading and thank you for this piece. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of make my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good. Because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season, that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So, Go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. 
Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's great. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We always end with what's on our mind outside of politics. And Sarah, I want to hear about your Robert Burns dinner this weekend. I want to know what you wore. I want to know what you did. I want to know what you ate, all the things. Well, listen, I'd never been to one before. I didn't know Robert Burns wrote Old Lang Syne. Can you imagine creating a piece of art that billions of people sing every New Year's Eve across the globe for hundreds of years after your death? That is unfathomable to me. And if I could fathom it, I think it would make me crawl in a hole. I don't know if I ever would have written it. You know, <laughs> just it's a lot of pressure that Robert Burns yeah. withstood. It's so true. Um, and so, and died really young. Really, I learned a lot about Robert Burns. That's the first part of the Robert Burns supper. I wore a tartan dress. Listen, I, I got a lucky break is the long and short of it because J. Crew carries my Stuart tartan. That's just a lucky break, right? I, I bought a lot of stuff. I have options for several suppers into the future. Um, and we had a delicious meal and we had so much fun. And my husband and I were tasked with the toast to the lassies and toast to the lads. And so I wrote Nicholas's toast to the lassies. He made a joke about how I wrote it during the writing. And then for my toast, I said, well, I was tired. So I thought, why don't I ask chat GPT to help me? And I had chat GPT write a version of salt and Peppa's What a Man in the style of Robert Burns for my toast to the lads. It was a big hit. I had to edit it a lot. It wasn't great at first. I had to, I had to work on a few pieces of it, but it was interesting to finally get in there and use chat GPT and to do it in this like really right at like crazy moment where we're honoring this artists who created works that have lived on. And it just, you know, I love a current moment. I love a current events moment where I can tie up a bunch of things at once. And, and that was it. Can you give us a little sample of, of the What a Man in the style of Robert Burns? Yes. Hold on just a second. No one is going to stand for hearing about that and not hearing the toast. Now, this is one of my one of the beginning versions. I didn't use this final version, but it's <laughs> what a lad, my lassie. What a mighty fine lad. He's got strength and he's got pride. In his eyes, there's a fierce fire. And when he takes me in his arms, I feel safe and I feel higher. What a lad, my lassie. What a mighty fine lad. I also did um, all the single ladies, which was hilarious. All the single lassies, raise your hand for a night of fun. 
and a Celtic band. Like it was <laughs> I love pretty it. funny. What did you eat? I want to know what you ate at the Robert Burns dinner. I did not sample the haggis. They had some. I, you know, I'm going to Scotland and Ireland this summer, so I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it till I'm in the mother country. But we had, you know, just roast chicken and potatoes and the carrot soup and pear compote. It was delicious. And we did like little scotch tastings that I barely sampled because I think scotch tastes like licking an ashtray. There I said it. If you have spent any time with my husband, you know that uh, Scotland is where his people are from. Mm. And he felt very at home and happy while we were there visiting. And since we came back from Scotland, he periodically orders haggis okay. uh, to have here in our home. And I have never tried it. I just, again, I have mentioned I'm, I'm very responsive to smells. And the smell <laughs> of haggis just doesn't really sit well with me. So I was especially curious to see if you tried it. I didn't. I'm going to wait till till this summer. But it was really fun. It was really fun. We just had a delightful time. Just a delightful time. So you would recommend attending a Robert Burns dinner if you have the opportunity? Yes. I mean, it's a very white event. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> um, but I just think, again, I think, first of all, I like any event that involves a costume or a style of clothes, or a particular focus on the dress. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love that. I like a guided experience. We, like, read Robert Burns' poetry. We had bagpiping. Like, I just want an immersive guided experience. That is my total and complete jam. So I had such a good time. Well, I'm so glad. And I loved seeing your pictures. Thank you all for joining us. Don't forget that you can join us for an immersive fun guided experience in Orlando (laughs) on April 5th. It's going to be such a fun night. The link to buy tickets is in our show notes. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Bettons, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.